From New York, this is Democracy Now! Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Authorities are ramping up security in Miami, where Donald Trump's scheduled to surrender to face felony charges Tuesday for retaining and mishandling classified documents, including top-secret information about U.S. nuclear weapons and secret plans to attack a foreign country. We'll get the latest on the 37-count indictment against the former president. Then as Pride Month celebrations continue, we look at a remarkable new documentary that explores the lives of intersex people. It's called Everybody. Society generally considers that biological sex is cut and dry. Actually, it's not cut and dry. We don't fall neatly into that male-female box. I was born intersex, and although I was born with a vagina, I was also born with internal testes. We live in a society that is so binary. So as an intersex person, where do I fit? In a broadcast exclusive, we'll speak to the director of Everybody, the Oscar-nominated filmmaker Julie Cohen, as well as three intersex activists featured in the film. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukraine says it recaptured four villages in the eastern Donetsk region after President Volodymyr Zelensky confirmed Saturday Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive has begun. It is important that Russia always feels it. They do not have much time left, in my opinion. Counteroffensive and defensive actions are taking place in Ukraine. At what stage? I will not say in detail. Zelensky also said the International Criminal Court has opened an investigation into last week's Kahovka Dam breach, which triggered an environmental disaster and killed at least 14 people. Federal and local law enforcement agencies say they've stepped up security and are monitoring online threats from far-right supporters of Donald Trump ahead of his appearance at a Miami federal court Tuesday. Trump is facing criminal charges for taking classified documents to his Mar-a-Lago estate when he exited the White House. At Georgia's Republican state convention over the weekend, Arizona's defeated gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake said she and 75 million others would defend Trump, adding, quote, most of us are are card-carrying members of the NRA. Trump, who also spoke at the Georgia convention, said he's still running for the 2024 presidency as he lashed out at the Biden administration. Now the Marxist left is once again using the same corrupt DOJ and the same corrupt FBI and the attorney general and the local district attorneys to interfere in our elections at a level that our country and few countries have ever seen before. They're cheating, they're crooked, they're corrupt. These criminals cannot be rewarded. They must be defeated. You have to defeat them. On Friday, the Justice Department unsealed the indictment against Trump containing 37 felony counts, including obstruction of justice and violations of the Espionage Act. Photographs released by the U.S. District Court show towering stacks of document boxes piled up in various parts of Trump's Florida resort, including a ballroom stage and a bathroom. We'll have more on this story after headlines with the nation's Ellie Mistel. 
In Sudan, intense airstrikes and artillery fire rattled the capital Khartoum Sunday as fighting between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces resumed following a 24-hour ceasefire. Witnesses said at least 17 civilians were killed across the capital region. There were reports of intense fighting in several other parts of Sudan, including Darfur. On Friday, Sudan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs declared Volker Perthes, the UN envoy for Sudan, persona non grata after Sudan's army chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan accused him of inflaming the conflict in Sudan. Perthes defended the UN's work and said the conflict could only be blamed on, quote, the two generals at war, unquote. In South Sudan, at least 20 people were killed, 50 others injured, after fighting erupted in a camp for displaced people in Upper Nile State. The camp is home to about 50,000 people who began arriving when the civil war in South Sudan broke out a decade ago. Back in the United States, the city of New Haven, Connecticut, has reached an historic $45 million settlement with Randy Cox, a black man left paralyzed after he was handcuffed and placed in the back of a police van without a seatbelt. After the van made an abrupt stop, Cox slid headfirst into a metal partition, seriously injuring his neck and spine. Officers then ignored his pleas for help. Five officers have pleaded not guilty to criminal charges, including second-degree reckless endangerment. In Philadelphia, an elevated highway collapsed Sunday following a crash, an oil tanker truck fire on Interstate 95. No deaths or injuries are reported. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro said it could take months to repair the major East Coast artillery I-95 in both directions. New York City officials have announced a new minimum wage for food app delivery workers of nearly $18 an hour before tips. Delivery workers contracted by companies like Uber and DoorDash currently make just $11 an hour. This is Lisha Walpa of the Workers' Justice Project, which organizes the immigrant-led group Los Deliveristas Unidos. We can finally say that New York City's more than 60,000 app delivery workers who are essential to our city will soon be guaranteed a minimum pay. New York City is delivering justice for deliveristas. Critics say the increase is still a sub-minimum wage once expenses are factored in and blasted New York City for delaying the pay rise. App companies raked in record profits during the pandemic. In Colombia, four indigenous children were found alive in the Amazon 40 days after their plane crashed in the rainforest in early May. The siblings ranged in age from 11 months to 13 years old, survived eating plants and seeds they'd been taught were edible, like cassava. The search and rescue efforts were largely led by indigenous community members who guided Colombian troops through the region. In more news from Colombia, the National Liberation Army, or ELN, the country's largest remaining guerrilla group, and Colombian officials have signed a ceasefire agreement after months of negotiation. This is Colombian President Gustavo Petro, who's vowed to bring total peace to Colombia. Que este firma de estos acuerdos parciales hoy... Today, the signing of these partial agreements brings you to a ceasefire, to a point that you had never experienced in the peace talks, to a ceasefire that follows with a promise that on May 25th, on May 2025, the decades-long war between the ELN guerrilla and the state of Colombia will definitively cease. 
At least 25 people in Pakistan were killed by torrential rains in countries northwest, which caused houses to collapse and trees to be uprooted. Meanwhile, authorities have put in place emergency measures as a severe and intense cyclone approaches Pakistan and India. In Somalia, over 20 people, most of them children and teens, were killed Friday in a southern town after an unexploded mortar shell detonated near where the victims were playing. More than 50 people were injured in the blast. Another six were killed Saturday during a six-hour siege of a beachside hotel by the armed group al-Shabaab in the capital Mogadishu. The media tycoon, billionaire, and four-time Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has died at the age of 86. Berlusconi was first elected Prime Minister in 1994, leveraging his unrivaled influence over public opinion in Italy, where he controlled newspapers, magazines, and three major TV channels. Throughout his career, Berlusconi faced multiple criminal charges, including abuse of office, bribery, corruption, and paying for sex with an underage girl. Most of the charges ended in dismissals after Berlusconi's government passed laws shielding him from prosecution. But a tax fraud conviction in 2013 barred him from public office for six years. And in New York City, an unscripted Tony Awards took place Sunday evening as the Writers Guild of America strike continues. Host Ariana DuBose kicked off the ceremony by leaping through a blank script before launching into a dance number consisting of a wordless medley of Broadway hits. She went on to express solidarity with striking entertainment writers. History was made as two non-binary performers took home awards for the first time. Jay Harrison G won Best Actor in a Musical for Some Like It Hot and an emotional Alex Newell took to the stage after winning for their role in the musical Shucked. Thank you for seeing me, Broadway. I should not be up here as a queer, non-binary, fat, black, little baby from Massachusetts. And to anyone that thinks that they can't do it, I'm going to look you dead in your face that you can do anything you put your mind to. These are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we look at the 37-count indictment against Donald Trump. And then the new remarkable documentary, Everybody. Stay with us. Small Acts by Bob Marley. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Local and federal authorities are ramping up security outside the federal courthouse in Miami, where Donald Trump is scheduled to surrender to face charges Tuesday for retaining and mishandling classified documents, including top-secret information about U.S. nuclear weapons and secret plans to attack another country. 
On Friday, the Justice Department unsealed the historic, sweeping 37-count indictment against Trump, who's become the first U.S. president to face federal criminal charges. Special Counsel Jack Smith spoke to reporters Friday. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives to protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. The case against the former president is built in part on the secret notes of Trump's own lawyer, as well as audio recordings of Trump, where he admits he was in possession of secret information that he had not declassified. The unsealed indictment includes photographs of boxes of classified documents stored haphazardly across Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, including a bathroom, a ballroom, and a bedroom. The federal grand jury also indicted Trump's aide, Walt Nauta, who faces six charges, including conspiracy to obstruct and withholding a record. The Trump case will at least initially be heard by federal district judge Aileen Cannon, who Trump had appointed. Last year, she sided with Trump's lawyers and appointed an outside special master to review documents seized by the FBI at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Over the weekend, Trump repeatedly attacked the special counsel, Jack Smith. Trump also urged supporters to come to Miami on Tuesday. On the presidential campaign trail, several of Trump's Republican rivals, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former Vice President Mike Pence, criticized the indictment of Trump. DeSantis decried what he called the weaponization of federal law enforcement. We're joined now by Ali Mistal, the nation's justice correspondent, the author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, now out in paperback. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Ellie. Um, so uh, thanks for having me. If you can start off by responding to the specific counts that we learned over the weekend before Trump's arraignment tomorrow on Tuesday. Yeah, so the thing about the indictment that stands out to me is that Trump, by his own running of the mouth, ruined his best legal defense, right? Like, the, the, the defense to... I took classified documents that I wasn't supposed to have and didn't give them back when you asked is I was too stupid to know they were classified documents or to know where they were. Who could tell? I'm not me. Like that's your actual best legal defense. And Trump blows that legal defense out of the water when he says, and they have him on tape saying that he knows the documents are confidential. He knows that he's not supposed to be showing it to whatever staffer he's showing it to. He knows that they're not declassified, and he knows that he can't declassify them now because he's no longer president. That section of the indictment is like ball game. That is game, set, match on Trump's only legal defense, Amy, which is why we see Trump going to all of these, let's say, 
extrajudicial um, defenses where he's attacking the special counsel, counsel attacking the process, calling, you know, doing the whataboutism thing and calling for his MAGA supporters to rally to his defense in Miami. He needs the MAGA supporters to rally to his defense because the law ain't going to do it. So where these documents were stored, and according to the indictment, Trump was personally involved in the process of packing and moving the boxes. I mean, when you have them uh, in that bathroom by the toilet, you wonder if there was a sign on the door, take a leak, right? Um, when you have them in the ballroom, um, when you have them in places that are accessed by, I mean, this isn't just his house. Mar-a-Lago is a resort where scores of people, hundreds of people, have access to these spaces. Amy, you mean you don't have a box of classified documents in your laundry room? Because like, uh, I keep mine, you know, just in my walk-in closet. That's right. Look, it's it, it is it is ridiculous. It is almost comical. Um, the disregard and disrespect um, that Trump has for our country and for our national security. Although it's not surprising that Trump acted with wanton and blatant disrespect. But I think what's kind of most important about the idea that Trump was physically, personally involved in packing and moving these documents is that he was hiding them from the FBI. Because that's the other part of this case, right? This The, the legal trouble that he's in. It is one thing, again, kind of legally to take classified documents and not know that they're classified, and then when you're informed that they're classified, to give them back, right? That's what a normal human does. That's what a normal former president or former vice president does. If they found that they took something that they shouldn't have, they give it back. They understand it's not theirs, it is the country's. Trump was asked to give these documents back, and not only did he not give them back, the, the indictment suggests that he was packing them and moving them around and hiding them from federal investigators and then lying to them and directing his lawyers to lie to them about what, where the documents were and how many he had. That's why Walt Nala is also indicted. That's why his attorney, Evan Cochran, um, was taking personal notes um, to keep himself out of trouble because he understood that he was being asked to do illegal things, right? So when you look at the documents in the bathroom, on the stage, next to the gaudy chandelier, understand that this is not just a, a cavalier treatment of our national secrets, it's also an attempt to hide, um, uh, hide from legitimate requests from the FBI. Over the weekend, the former Republican Arizona gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, made this incendiary threat. I have a message tonight. She was speaking in truth. From Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and Joe Biden. And the guys back there in the fake news media, you should listen up as well. This one's for you. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. Card-carrying members of the NRA, 
millions of them, she said. This isn't a threat. It's a public service announcement. She was speaking in Georgia, where President Trump also spoke. Ellie Mistel, your response and the response of those who continue to support President Trump, including the his opposing, you think his opponents now in the Republican race would take full advantage of this, um, instead backing off. Look, threats are all these weak, unserious, violent people have, all right? Threats are the last refuge of the bigoted white supremacists that have formed the vanguard of defending Trump. And my only response to that is that it's not 75 million Americans. Based on January 6th, it's only a few thousand of y'all cowards that we have to deal with in our pursuit of justice. And I'm sure that Jack Smith and the FBI are prepared to deal, to do what is necessary to bring Trump to trial. So. I'm not worried about Carrie, Carrie Lake and her aggressive vacuuming of Donald Trump's record, all right? What I think is more problematic um, is the fact that the entire Republican Party continues to debase itself in service of Donald Trump and in service of that white supremacist base, base that Carrie Lake is talking to, right? Like, as you point out, Amy, in a normal party... When one of your rivals is indicted on 37 counts of espionage, the rest of the field is like, hmm, maybe you should elect me and not the guy who just got indicted. But in the modern Republican Party, they're all theming, right? They're all like jonesing for the next hit off of Trump's white supremacist base. And so they can't risk saying mean things about Trump, even though he's just been indicted. They have to instead placate Trump, even as they purport to be running against him. It is pathetic on their part, but the debasement of one of the two major political parties in the country is an ongoing problem because as you start to kind of work through the, the kind of practical realities, now not just of indicting Trump, but bringing him to trial and potentially convicting him, that becomes really hard to do if during the course of this process, he is crowned the Republican standard bearer for the 2024 presidential election. Ellie Mistel, we're going to continue to cover this tomorrow and Wednesday and continue, of course, right through the trial, if there is one. Ellie Mistel is the nation's justice correspondent. He's the author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. After Trump is arraigned on Tuesday, he's planning to give a major address, address his supporters. And also Trump supporters are planning to load buses to head to Miami from other parts of Florida, raising concerns for law enforcement who are preparing for the potential unrest around the courthouse, AP reports. Next up, as Pride Month celebrations continue, we look at a revelatory documentary that's just out exploring the lives of intersex people. It's called Everybody. Stay with us. On the day we sweated out on the streets of a runaway American group. At night we ran through mansions of glory Suicide machines Sprung from cables on highway nine Chrome wheel fuel injection and stepping out over from your back, it's 
Springsteen's Born to Run, performed by Amy McDonald. The song is featured in Everybody, the film we're talking about today. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. June is Pride Month, a time to celebrate the LGBTQIA community. Today, we look at those represented by the I, which stands for intersex. In a broadcast exclusive, we're joined by the filmmaker and three stars of this revelatory new documentary that explores their lives. It's called Everybody. This is the trailer, which opens with scenes from gender reveal parties of expectant parents. Three, two, one. Society generally considers that biological sex is cut and dry. Actually, it's not cut and dry. We don't fall neatly into that male-female box. I was born intersex, and although I was born with a vagina, I was also born with internal testes. We live in a society that's so binary. So it's an intersex person. Where do I fit? The definition of intersex is any variation in a person's sex characteristics. They told my mom, you have a child that we feel is abnormal. And this body was a problem that needed to be fixed. Fixed Fixed, and that I should never tell anyone about it. It's therapeutically highly desirable to have them surgically corrected at an early age. I just remember like a lot of pain. In most cases, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that surgery is medically necessary. I can walk into the The doctor changed the course of my life. I did not consent to that surgery. I had to tell the world what had happened. We've just been silent about this for so long. I'm gonna come out today. I'm gonna tell the Texas Senate. I was born with balls. I think we're at the cusp of something cool. Our goal is to pass a bill to condemn these medically unnecessary surgeries. A huge revolution starting right now. Hey! Intersex surgeries! Just existing as an intersex person is grounds for celebration in a whole world that doesn't see us. But you know what? I am intersex. We are here now. That's the trailer for everybody. The documentary tells the stories of three people who've become intersex activists after childhood marked by shame, secrecy, and non-consensual surgeries. 
It's set to hit theaters nationwide June 30th, released by Focus Features. Today, we're joined by its director and three people it features, actor and screenwriter River Gallo, political consultant Alicia Rothweigel, and scholar Sean Seifa-Wall. They're all working for greater understanding of the intersex community and to end unnecessary surgeries. Everybody is produced with NBC News Studios and just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival here in New York. It's directed by Julie Cohen, the Academy Award-nominated Emmy-winning director and producer of RBG, along with Betsy West, as well as the Oscar-shortlisted Julia and the Peabody-winning My Name is Polly Murray. Julie's past producer for Dateline NBC. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! I mean, I don't think I've seen a premiere like this. Afterwards, I was afraid, especially from the balcony, that people would fall over as they leapt to their feet, <laughs> weeping, laughing, clapping. I mean, the response was overwhelming. Julie, I was wondering if we could start with you to talk about why you made this film, talk about your choice of the people you've interviewed and the subject matter. Yeah, um, this film uh, kind of started off with an archival story from the NBC News archives um, that, that really does a bunch to explain why intersex people have been medically treated and I'd add mistreated in the way they have. That led me pretty quickly to looking into what's going on with the modern movement for intersex rights, a movement frankly, that I was unfamiliar with in starting. And what I came across, you know, as someone who's actually looked at a fair number of activist movements, is a a movement that's in the midst of truly blossoming after childhoods, youths, young adulthoods, often of being either explicitly told or just getting a vibe that, you know, my body is something I shouldn't be talking publicly about. Um, a group of very thoughtful and brave young people, including uh, Saifa, Alicia, and River, have decided to come forward, dispense with all this secrecy, shame stuff, and embrace their stories and their movement with pride. It's like this blooming movement that just hasn't gotten the media coverage that I think it, it deserves and the attention of, of the public. And once you see what people are up to, it's like, it's pretty astounding. And it's kind of, uh, it, it, it's kind of like, I was inspired just going to some of the, the actions. And as you mentioned, you know, yesterday's, yesterday's premiere, there were so many intersex people in the audience. And I think just having the experience of after being told your whole life, this is something you should be ashamed of, to have it presented that like, no, there's something to be really proud of and something really beautiful about coming forward as an intersex person, I just think had a real impact on people. Well, River, Alicia, and Saifa, it's amazing to have you all together, as you were in Julie's film, Everybody, uh, to talk today. I wanted to start with Saifa. Saifa, define... um, intersex for us. You know, people often say LGBTQIA. They may not know what that I stands for or what it means. 
Right. Um, thank you. Well, good morning, Amy. I'm so glad to be here. Um, when we talk about intersex, uh, we're talking about sex characteristics. And I think it's just really important to know that everyone has sex characteristics. And when I'm talking about sex characteristics, I'm talking about hormones, chromosomes, reproductive organs um, that are considered by the medical establishment to be atypical for what is considered normal, and I put that in quotes, um, human development. Um, but I think what I really want to underscore is that everyone has sex characteristics, but people who have some kind of difference or variation are usually harmed because of it. So if you would, can you tell us your life story? Uh, so take us on the medical journey. <laughs> I'm going to half. That take us on the life journey that you want us to understand. Mm, that's such a beautiful question, Amy. Um, you know, I think I always ground my story in the experience of the people who came before me. Um, I ground that story in the experience of my grandmother, um, who was a domestic worker um, in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, who had three children during Jim Crow uh, with androgen insensitivity syndrome. Um, it is her resilience, um, she's passed, but it's her resilience, um, her living, uh, the living of my uncles um, who also had the same variation I have. Um, I can't even imagine what they, what they have lived through, um, but Spiritually, I stand on their shoulders. Um, and so for me, I cannot tell my story without it being grounded um, in the experience of the South, um, without the experience of North Carolina, without the sort of migration of my mother and many other people from the South to the North, um, fleeing racial terror. Um, and so for me, I think my passion and my dedication to this issue is not only to heal myself, um, but to heal the generations that will come after me and the generations that have come before me. You grew up in the Bronx. Can you talk about That's what true. the doctors told your mother when you were born? <sighs> um, so my mom had two children before me who also had AIS. And they were born during the 60s where the protocol was to sort of remove what they considered gonads, but which were really undescended testes. And so those surgeries were done in infancy. When I was born, um, they also wanted to do that. Um, and this was at Columbia Presbyterian here in New York City. And my mom said no, you know, because something didn't feel right to her. And, you know, she kept saying no. And the only reason why she consented to surgery is that the doctor at the time told her that these gonads, and I put those in quotes too, these gonads were cancerous. And because of the risk of cancer in my family, um, she, she consented. What mother and wouldn't? It wasn't, of course, of course, you know? Um, but what I would say is that it wasn't thorough informed consent. 
And it turned out, of course, you saw the records that, in fact, you were not in any way, you did not have cancer. I did not. Um, I received those records when I was 25, and I felt betrayed, I felt angry, and I think there was a whole part of my life that I was cheated out of. And what I experienced, what other people have experienced, are civil rights and human rights violations that no one should ever experience. So you were raised as a girl? Yes. Um, So on my medical records, it was noted um, that I had a small phallus and undescended testes. And they just made the arbitrary decision to assign me as female and raise me as a girl. But I never felt like a girl. Um, But because my mom was super feminine, um, I think she was tolerant. But then at the age of around seven, she was like, you're a girl, you know? Um, So that's why I really support and love trans kids, you know, which we have to support young people when they know who they are. We have to affirm that. Um, And I eventually transitioned when I was 25. But testosterone didn't do the same thing for me and my variation that it did for other people. And I think for me, and, you know, I give a trigger warning. Um, I I think it was a decision that I could either kill myself and no one would know my story, but that if I decide to live, that I must fight so that other people can live and live with dignity. And when you had that operation um, to eradicate the cancer that you did not have, um, what did you understand you were going through? Were you explained at that point? How old were you? I was 13 years old. And I don't... (laughs) Oh, boy. I mean, I think the one of the doctors who was involved with my care worked very closely with Dr. Money. Um, They actually wrote a book together, Man, Woman, Boy, Girl. And she told me as a young person that I had these small ovaries and a small uterus that had to be removed and that eventually I would be able to have, you know, a relationship with my husband and have children. It was a lie. It was all a lie. Um, And so I didn't really understand what was happening. It was so much happening around that time. Um, But I think for me, even though my body was changing in ways that I could not understand, I was okay with it. And if, you know, again, if we knew what we know now, I I think it would have been lovely for people to support me and really trying to understand my body and be okay with it, as opposed to castrating me and subjecting me to feminizing hormones, effects that I still live with today. Hmm. You're watching, listening to, or if you're reading this after Sean uh, Sean Seifert Wall. 
Um, and Sean Seifewald just referred to John William Money, the American psychologist, sexologist, professor at Johns Hopkins University, known for his research on human sexual behavior and gender. River Gallo is also in the studio, actor, screenwriter, Salvadoran-American filmmaker, and intersex activist. They wrote, directed, and acted in the 2019 short film Pony Boy, the first film to feature an openly intersex actor playing an intersex person. Um, River, it was great to meet you yesterday at the premiere, to really meet you in this remarkable film everybody, and particularly to see your relationship with your mother. Um, can you share with us your life journey? Um, of course. Good morning, Amy. Thank you so much for having me and us and for opening the space to um, raise awareness for this really important um, movement that's happening. Um, my life story um, originates in New Jersey, home of Bruce, as you played his song earlier. Um, I uh, grew up in a family of, um, uh, my parents immigrated from El Salvador uh, to escape the Civil War in the 80s and um, wound up in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, my, my childhood was um, pretty typical. You know, my parents, uh, we're Catholic from a you know very poor country in Central America, um, and so when I was born, it was um, quite a shock to them and to the rest of our family. I was born with a condition called anorchia, which means my um, I had a penis, but or still do, <laughs> <laughs> but my testes were absent at birth, and um, the protocol was to keep that a secret. Um, for uh, until I was 12, actually. And then I was told that I um, was born without testes and um, thereafter was put on testosterone to go through puberty. And at 16, was um, uh, I had a surgery to implant prosthetic testicles inside of my scrotum, the idea being to... Um, look like a normal, um, and I say that with air quotes, uh, boy, man, um, the, the fallacy in all of that was the fact that later on I would identify as non-binary and trans femme, um, in which case these testes that were put into my body didn't affirm my gender and actually give me gender dysphoria. And it's, it's, something that I still live with today, a reminder that I was operated on unconsensually. Um, and my parents at the time were just listening to doctor's orders and, you know, um, they didn't grow up with college education, you know. Um, and I, I do think that the, the racial component, them being Latin A immigrants, um, was a huge factor in the fact that um, they were just trying to do what was best for me. The fact that I was born in a hospital was a big deal for them because they legitimately grew up without shoes and, you know, without things that I now have and they were able to provide for me. So um, I offer them a lot of compassion and grace for, for the decisions they made. 
Um, but to the medical establishment, they definitely took advantage of um, my parents who were re really vulnerable. Um, and like you said, my relationship with them, particularly my mother, um, has been one of uh, a lot of spiritual strength that has given me the ability to then be able to tell my story and express myself authentically in various artistic formats that I now I'm getting a lot of praise and recognition as a, a screenwriter and, and an actor in Hollywood. Talk about two pivotal ages for you, um, 12 and 27. 12 was the time that I found out that I was uh, born without testes and started testosterone replacement therapy. And essentially my life as I knew it was completely, it was like, yeah, the sense of betrayal and the sense of, um, yeah, just feeling like I was lied to my whole life was so, it, it unearthed a new chapter in my like psychology where I realized that I really couldn't trust anyone, not even my own parents, about um, the truth about who I was. Um, and at 27 was when I made the decision to uh, create a short film while I was at USC, um, the University of Southern California at film school, to... Um, for the first time, talk about my experience as an as related to this intersex variation. At the time when I was writing that screenplay for um, my short film uh, called Pony Boy, I didn't know the term intersex, um, and so I created this fictional character of this uh, queer sex worker who um, lived in in New Jersey and had this like mysterious love affair with this cowboy and I I knew that I wanted to um, reveal this part of my identity and put that into this character um, around my variation and so I started researching more about my variation Anorkia and that's when I discovered that it was a part of the broader intersex umbrella and that's when I discovered actually Alicia and Saifa that were activists and that there was a whole community of people talking about this and um, that it was actually a human rights violation. And so it became this revelatory moment for me where I realized that my work as an actor and as a writer um, had a certain deeper weight than I could have ever imagined because the movement was, as Julie said, just starting to blossom and I was aware of that and so I knew that it was I had no choice but to um, incorporate that part of my identity into this character and just uh, yeah River, take that leap of faith I want to play a clip from Julie's film Everybody that features you do you see that you're beautiful It's so funny because sometimes, honestly, I won't know what I look like. And then I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, oh my God, I'm stunning. Since coming out as intersex, I definitely feel more beautiful. And I don't mean that just like, oh, like, like I got hot. 
but it was more like I got the confidence to just start showing up however I'd, I'd want to show up. Wow, I did it. That is exciting. Drama for the gala. River Gallo, in the new documentary that just premiered to enormous acclaim at the Tribeca Film Festival yesterday. It's called Everybody. And before we turn to the third person featured in this film, I want to play another clip of the film that features her, Alicia Roth Weigel. Um, Her testimony is featured in the film, and this is the testimony from 2017 against Texas Senate Bill 3 to discriminate against transgender people and their ability to use public restrooms. Madam Chairperson and members of the committee, thank you for your time. My name is Alicia Weigel. I'm a resident of Austin, and I'm here to humbly ask you to please vote no on Senate Bills 3 and 91. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a res- resident of Austin. I'm the director of a gender equality nonprofit, and I have XY chromosomes. So I stand here today, or sit here today, <laughs> representing the I in LGBTQIA, which stands for intersex. Uh, because of a condition called complete androgen insensitivity, I was born phenotypically female on the outside with a woman's anatomy, but with internal testes instead of ovaries. Um, and they were subsequently removed as to not become precancerous. And so I would like to respectfully counter a point made earlier that biological sex is cut and dry when 2% of the global population uh, are born with intersex conditions. That's roughly the equivalent of that has red hair, about half the uh, entire population of the United States in terms of equivalent numbers. Um, And this practice of removing internal testes is now heavily contested only 27 years later because it's a remnant of this still present gender ideal and wanting to normalize children from birth. Um, So while I find it absurd that I have to disclose my anatomical history in front of a room of strangers, that makes me feel more compelled to do so, uh, because unfortunately, I'll never be able to bear children, but I'm extremely privileged to have been born in a way that my discrepancy from the gender norm is not immediately apparent that I don't wear it on my sleeve. That saved me from a lot of persecution up to this point. And I can tell you that I'm very much a woman. I sit before you today. And I help manage Wendy Davis's nonprofit Focus on Women's Rights because as a victim of discrimination in the workplace, I'd like to emphasize this to Senator Colcourse as a survivor of sexual assault. Uh, these bind me to the common plight of what it means to be a woman. And does that mean that because of my genotypic XY chromosomes, I've been using the wrong bathroom my whole life? No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, It means that a bathroom is a place where all humans, regardless of gender, engage in a common activity that unfortunately we have not yet evolved out of, which is going to the bathroom. So thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's Alicia Rothweigel testifying in 2017 uh, before a Texas Senate committee against the bathroom bill. Um, there's an excerpt of her testimony in Everybody. And as we go into that testimony in Everybody, Alicia, I mean, part of this film, I mean, it talks about the agony of um, secrecy and shame and non-consensual surgery, but it's also hilarious and joyful. And you going into that Senate hearing room, um, talk about the shock of many. 
um, who'd even in the politicians hit on you before. Yes, uh, living in Texas, we have a lot of old white male politicians who unfortunately do not always conduct themselves in a way that I would deem worthy of public office. Um, I landed myself in Texas in 2016 working with former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis, who became famous uh, due to her 15-hour filibuster that we now refer to as the People's Filibuster to help kill a bill that would have restricted abortion access across the state of Texas, which we no longer have. Um, but working with Wendy, who was well known as a feminist icon, not just within the state of Texas, but worldwide following that filibuster, um, I became very closely associated with Wendy, helping her launch a nonprofit called Deeds Not Words. And despite being at least a head taller than her, uh, people kind of came to know me as mini Wendy and uh, were both blonde, feisty, feisty Texas women. And I would frequently walk into the Capitol to testify and help move bills in the realm of sexual assault and human trafficking, which was my main focus at the time. Uh, and so I was well known in that building, um, again, as a young blonde woman, often frequently in the presence of much older cis white male legislators. Um, and when they did hit on me or when they would send me emails and <laughs> at all hours of the night and stuff like that, it, it kind of helped me realize that I think my voice lends a different angle to our movement. Um, there is no one way to look intersex. There is no one way to be intersex. Um, it is an umbrella term that encompasses a broad range of lived experiences. Um, and I think that in a place like Texas that is still so far behind the rest of the country and the rest of the world in terms of the way that they um, perceive and receive human beings in all of our beautiful diversity. Um, unfortunately, looking the way that I do, presenting the way that I do in the world, sometimes uh, people that are stuck in the past um, might hear my words with a different weight. Um, and so I think coming in there as someone that they had all hit on, um, and then being able to tell them that I actually was born with balls, <laughs> I think um, blew some of their minds that day. Um, and continues to blow some of their minds. Um, so it, it was shock value on that day, but um, it's also my lived experience. I am a woman. I am a proud Texas woman who is fighting for against our high rates of maternal mortality in the state, that is fighting for body autonomy across the spectrum of all human rights, including uh, free and fair access to abortions. Um, and so I think bringing the intersex movement intersectionally into the women's movement is a really, really important um, fight because if we can get half of the world's population to understand that our fight for body autonomy is the exact same fight as a sexual assault survivors or someone who's fighting for access to abortion, I think the faster that we're, we're going to achieve what, what we're setting out to do. So when you took the mic at the Tribeca Film Festival yesterday, you said, okay, I'm an activist too and I got to make our demands. And you're here in New York City. Uh, protests at Weill Cornell, if you can explain why. And talk about what's being demanded around surgery. I mean, kind of very different from uh, the anti-trans surgery where people are calling for, well, as you're saying, bodily autonomy, um, but also what's happening in New York City that's being weighed right now. 
Yeah, so we actually have been making some really good headway in the policy arena. Um, New York City was the first city to pass um, an ordinance that formally condemned surgeries and outlawed them in New York Health and Hospitals public health system. Um, it also mandated a public awareness campaign for parents and doctors of intersex children so that they can make better informed decisions than any of our parents were able to, often at the hands of misinformation um, provided to them by the medical community. We were able to replicate that same ordinance in Austin, Texas. We are the second city in the US, the first city in the South um, to replicate that ordinance. And actually we just saw that ordinance scaled to the statewide level, New York State, the New York State Assembly, the New York State Senate, so the entire legislator, legislature um, has scaled that statewide. And so um, the state of New York is going to be running a public awareness campaign to raise visibility of the existence of people like the three of us and so many others uh, in our movement and that have yet to join our movement, which is really exciting. And I just came from the White House uh, two days ago. We've been working with the federal government, with health, health and human services, and directly with President Biden's White House administration to create a um, the first ever of its kind report on the health inequities faced by our community, including non-consensual surgeries, but also including the little talked about utter dearth and lack of adult health care for indivi intersex individuals in the United States. Um, I have often had to fly to the coasts to receive care at huge personal expense. That is obviously an inequity to people who cannot afford to do something like that. Um, I have done, I have run um, surveys and focus groups um, across the state of Texas, and we know that Texans are flying quite literally to Japan to receive health care. Um, and so beyond just the surgeries that we experience in our infancy, we can't find doctors that have any idea how to treat our bodies. There's a severe lack of data on what our bodies need to be healthy. Um, there's severe misinformation about what our bodies need to be healthy. Um, and so I'm very excited to be working alongside so many other activists, hand in hand with President Biden's administration to help rectify that. Finally, we just have 30 seconds, but Julie Cohen, the Oscar-nominated director, what you're hoping to accomplish with this film that's out in theaters on June 30th? I'd say more openness, more understanding, uh, less shame and secrecy, more pride. You know, people often talk about, like, oh, are you trying to, like, normalize intersex people? Uh, that doesn't need to be done. Uh, you've just heard from Alicia, River, and Saifa. They are already normal. Uh, understanding that there is a broad spectrum of what normal can be and what beauty and pride can be all about uh, is part of what this film is all about. And I hope it's going to prompt people to want to educate themselves more and to want to feel some pride and joy along with intersex activists who are fighting for their rights after so long. Well, certainly pride, joy, humor, and also um, the reality of people's lives featured in this new documentary, Everybody. Julie Cohen, Alicia Rothweigel, River Gallo, Sean Seifert, Wall. I'm Amy Goodman.